You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And it's a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time on this 10th of November as we draw closer to the end of 2020 with the hope of a much better year next year. But today on Tuesday Home Time, we'll hear the second part of the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecture with human rights defender, activist and former politician, Melissa Park. Then I was speaking with Cathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, about the feelings in America, particularly in Chicago, where she's based, about the President-elect Joe Biden and his Vice President Kamala Harris. Protests continue in Thailand. Giles Ong Pakron is watching from exile in England after fleeing after being charged in 2009 with Les Majesty insulting a king. And that's one of the demands of the protesters to get rid of that. Then Professor Bassam Daly from Australians for Free Palestine Association with more about Melissa Park and how you can assist her to fight for free speech on Palestine. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and let's see what sort of a week it's been for him. A week, Jane, listener, when a mob called the Ethics Centre in a joint report with Deloitte Access to Your Money estimate that a 10% rise in ethical behaviour by the Trublawazi caring business and government classes would add $45 billion to the gross domestic product. So that's $45 billion we'll never see. Dare we say a 10% rise in ethical behaviour coming off a very, very low base, bringing us to the standard ethics of the caring business class. Our older listener will recall that fine entrepreneur and dedicated practitioner of business class ethics, Mike Gore, a major player in what was labelled the White Shoe Brigade back in the days of Joe Belchie Peterson, Russ Hunt's bribes and the gang up in Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, who kept finding brown paper bags full of money landing on their doorsteps and turning up on their desks. No idea where they came from. Mike doing wonders for the environment and, among other things, his Sanctuary Code Resort with some silly suggestions there might have been the odd connection between the wonders for the environment and the proliferation of brown paper bags. Well, Mike Sion Craig followed his dad into development and investment, investment meaning getting other people to invest in him, making billions, making the filthiest, filthy richest of the filthy rich list, before running into a bit of trouble like owing 500 mil to investors and going bankrupt, Bad luck for the investors, but Mike dragged himself up again by his Swiss leather bootstraps and began an investment business for self-funded superannuants, who obviously self-funded Craig. And very, very sad news, listener. I hate to destroy your, your afternoon so early, perhaps your mood for a long time, but at this very moment, poor Craig is in a prison cell, awaiting sentence for losing heaps more of the money with which he was entrusted, or getting their money a bit confused with his own. With even more, sadly, more charges pending for swindling investors, or more correctly, allegedly swindling investors, as if. So... Spare a thought for poor Craig. 
It does leave us to ponder, though, why anyone would entrust even one cent to a like father, like son scion of the White Shoe Brigade, the upholder of real business ethics, upheld conscientiously here in our very own state by trains forgot to clean, bribing its way, or sorry, investing its way to the contract to clean our trains, handed billions more because of the coronavirus adopting the sensible attitude that with so few people using public transport, it was a waste to give these avaricious workers a little of the billions when it could pocket the lot. With some people, some anti-caring business class, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron lot suggesting that before the credo that contracting out public services removes them from the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector, the cleaning would have been undertaken by public employees and they ludicrously add it would have been a hell of a lot cheaper and then to twist the knife into the wound of the super efficient private sector they claim on top of all that that the job would have been done the trains would have been cleaned when all trains forgot to clean did when all poor locked in a remand cell Craig did was practice standard business ethics the Ethics Council and Deloitte Access to Your Money call for a 10% rise in business ethics does, of course, concede something about the morality of the caring business class, doesn't it? Although a 10% rise in the week that was standard business ethics behaviour would have the mind boggling. On the inefficient, bloated public sector, the New South Wales caring business class government, big economic guru Dominic Perro pay less, described its reduction of public service wage rises to 1.5% as very generous. It's completely fair and reasonable and very generous in the circumstances, Dominic announced. Uh, what circumstances are they, Dom? Uh, the circumstance that it's 1.5% more then we'd like to pay them. It's been all generosity for New South Wales public servants as their caring business class con mission recently awarded them a giant 0.3% pay, pay rise, which would have led to wild celebratory all-night parties in public servant households and offices. The con mission arguing the giant 0.3% wage explosion was due to the pandemic. So we can assume the government will also use the pandemic to restrict caring business class profits to a range of 0.3 to 1.5%. Despite government and con mission largesse, the usual suspects, Evil Unions New South Wales and the Bloody Public Service Union, claimed it wasn't very generous in the circumstances. You just can't please them, can you, that it will signal to the private sector to keep wages low when we know slow wages growth is one of the caring employer's biggest worries. They just can't see a solution. And a long-haired commie Sydney Uni business school professor claimed, how ludicrous is this, it would entrench low wage growth as a community norm. Typical academic with no concept of the real world. The sort of removed from reality academic, like the evil unions who reckon the solution to slow wages both is staring caring employers in the face. Why, if it was, the caring employers would be the first to solve the problem. Oh, how could we forget? There was the US of the UN of the US of the world election. Not quite resolved. Well, it's only been five days or six days or something, and there's a lot of votes to count. Although the not Donald Trump or the poor candidate has been declared the winner by the television networks, 
obviously fake news, fake news, worst fake news ever, ever. Not Donald Trump or the poor, the kindest thing we can say about him. Donald has also declared himself the winner, not fake news. Not sure he meant the vote or with the Supreme Court judges he handpicked. The vote rigged in all those states where the not Donald Trump or the poor guy won, but that it's even close that the polls were way off again suggests it must be the United States of amnesia. People have forgotten the past four years, and doesn't it say heaps for the consciousness of the U.S. of people that roughly half of them voted for Donald, who, despite some suggestions of a divided nation, said... There's a love in the U.S. of, like the world's never seen before, greatest love ever, ever. Uh, what? What everyone loves everyone else, Donald? No, everyone loves me, greatest love me, ever, ever. And if anyone doesn't believe in love like the world's never seen before, I hate them. Bad people, awful people, worst awful people ever, ever. And Donald and his vice puppet Mike Dollars and Pence assured us, we're going to protect the integrity of the vote. Uh, what makes sure every vote is counted? Make sure every vote is not counted. Best not counted ever, ever. Donald himself voted in Florida to where he has changed his residential address and, wait for this, some cynics suggested his motive was that Florida does not have state taxes that it's a tax dodge. But, but why bother to tax dodge when you don't pay any taxes to dodge? Like, when Donald tweets and talks, satire is going to miss him if he goes, sometimes we can't believe what we hear, like counsel assisting the inquiry into the Crook Casino claiming Jamie Puker and his hedge people are not fit and proper persons to run a casino. Where would that come from? Uh, apart from the evidence... And anyway, as we've said before, if international precedence is a guide, as in the fit and proper people running casinos around the world, JB and the gang are perfectly fit and proper to run a casino. After all, 30 or so years ago, retired Supreme Court big Xavier Connor recommended against granting a casino license in Melbourne because of their link to and potential for crime. Thank goodness the next state government ignored that anti-caring business class standard ethics advice and granted fit and proper Jamie his private mint. On private mints like the big four banks, the government does not endorse everything the highly respected bankers do. Like the minister for being very upset, David Little to be proud of, being very upset that the ANZ Bank declared it would change its policy on funding new fossils. David threatening to review government benefits like its deposit guarantees. The Hayseed and Sheepshit Party will review every policy lever to protect us from these, these sorts of arbitrary boardroom ideological decisions. And we can but imagine the government's hurt that someone would bring ideology into the climate change debate, if there is such a thing as expressed by a true blue Aussie capitalist review editorial on Jacinta Dern's New Zealand victory. The prospects don't look good amid a ban on oil and gas exploration, a very expensive push from 85 to 100 percent green power, and other anti-growth gestures. See. Opposing fossils and supporting non-fossils is anti-growth and just a useless smash-the-economy gesture. On which, well, good for all of us growth, 
finally, we have a new fossil company in True Blue Aussie, Bravis, Bravis Mining and Resources. Well, not exactly new. It was called Adani, which has decided to change its name. But it's not what you think. It's assured us it was just time for a change. Nothing to do with the name Adani being, quote, toxic. Of course not. It's true Blue Aussie Supremo David Bashoff protesters explained. The only thing toxic is what we do. Good afternoon. And that, of course, was Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. But don't forget, you can hear a whole hour of Kevin and his friends tomorrow morning here on 3CR, 8.55am, or digital 3CR with City Limits. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to, via Save the Children stuff, to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it? It is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. to the second and final part of the 2020 Edward Sayed Memorial Lecture by human rights lawyer, former politician and activist Melissa Park. The most extreme reaction by pro-Israel supporters to one of my parliamentary speeches occurred when I presented Jewish-Israeli academic Marcelo Zviersky's petition on the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement to the Australian Parliament and endeavoured to refute the myths about the BDS campaign, noting that it is a perfectly acceptable, non-violent means of protesting serious violations of international law. Apparently, I was the first MP from any party to speak about BDS in other than a negative way in the National Parliament. A Labor senator from Western Australia, who has been on many paid trips to Israel, made a speech that same night in Parliament, 
much of which was republished verbatim in the West Australian the next day and other media outlets, accusing me, among other things, of spouting propaganda from groups devoted to genocidal ideologies. I also, however, received flowers delivered to my parliamentary office from the wonderful Australian John Salisbury, who has, by the way, written an inspiring book entitled Walking for Palestine. The number of jurisdictions around the world that have criminalised the boycott divestment sanctions campaign is deeply disturbing and quite bewildering, considering its similarities with the now universally admired anti-apartheid movement. Courageous Israeli journalist Gidon Levy has remarked that it has become a crime to protest a crime, a crime to boycott the criminal, a crime to fight violation of international law. I retired from Parliament after nine years in 2016. However, I agreed to stand for Labor in Julie Bishop's former seat of Curtin in the May 2019 federal election, knowing it was likely unwinnable, but simply wanting to use the occasion to raise awareness of important issues like climate change. I expected I would be asked about my views on other matters central to the election campaign, such as my stance on refugees, live exports and Adani. However, I did not expect to be attacked for comments I'd made a month earlier to a small gathering to launch the WA Labor Friends of Palestine group. This had occurred prior to the election campaign even starting and before I knew I'd be a candidate. It was particularly surprising to be assailed by media around the country for having recounted some incidents I recalled and could demonstrate to be true from my time in Gaza including that of the Palestinian refugee woman who'd been forced by an Israeli soldier to drink a bleach-like cleaning liquid. My account of this incident was referred to by several journalists and commentators in the Australian media as an allegation, a lurid claim, inflammatory, unevidenced, a vivid concoction, a medieval trope against Jews, extreme, a laundry list of slanders and downright falsification the strong implication being that I'd made the story up. None of them bothered to check with me if it was true. Truth did not appear to be the point of the articles. I continued to be attacked even after it was revealed that the precise incident had indeed been reported in the Haaretz newspaper in Israel and here in Australia in the Sydney Morning Herald Age newspapers on 23 June 2003 under the headline, Soldier-Made Woman Drink Cleaning Fluid. It was also reported and in a report from the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs and fully detailed in a 2003 report from the Palestinian Centre for Human Rights. As anyone who has spent time in the occupied Palestinian territories can attest, there is no need to invent atrocities. They are occurring on an almost daily basis. But I was accused in the media of being a fanatic, an extremist, a conspiracy theorist and anti-Semitic, not only for recounting the bleach incident, but also because I had accurately quoted Archbishop Desmond Tutu in saying the situation in Palestine is worse than South African apartheid, because I had talked about the political influence of the pro-Israel lobby in Australia, because I had spoken about boycott divestment sanctions in Parliament, and because I talked about the need for Australia to be consistent in its condemnation of countries for serious and serial violations of international law. As Edward Said had argued, 
If you want to uphold basic human justice, you must do so for everyone, not just selectively for the people that your side, your culture, your nation designates as okay. Even after I agreed to step down as the candidate to reduce any flow-on impact to the ALP, the attacks on my character in the media continued, including commentary from current and former MPs from both sides of politics and from the pro-Israel lobby. I was not able to respond adequately at the time because I did not want the issue to be an ongoing distraction during the national election campaign. However, the episode had a seriously negative impact on me personally and professionally. I had been a community legal centre lawyer, a UN lawyer working internationally for eight years in some difficult environments, and then a serious-minded MP for nine years, including having been a minister, with a reputation for standing up for human rights. I received the Accountability Roundtable Award for Parliamentary Integrity alongside Judy Moylan in 2013, and I had been retired from Parliament for three years, during which I'd been appointed a member of the UN Group of Eminent Experts on Yemen. So it was deeply disturbing to have my reputation, established through 25 years of public and community service, traduced with such vitriol and malice. Nevertheless, I continue to believe strongly in the view expressed by Edward Said that despite the abuse and vilification that any outspoken supporter of Palestinian rights and self-determination earns for him or herself, the truth deserves to be spoken. It is critical that each of us who have our freedom speak up for those who don't. Unfortunately, despite the manifest wrongs that have been perpetrated against them, the Palestinian perspective is rarely seen or heard. To the world, and the West in particular, they are rendered faceless, voiceless and other through a number of rhetorical devices. The first is denial of their existence as a people. The declaration by former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir in 1969 that there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. And the Zionist slogan formulated by Israel Zangwill toward the end of the 19th century, a land without people for a people without land, essentially saying that Palestine was terra nullius in 1948, were both disingenuous. They belied the fact that the presence of Palestinian inhabitants in Palestine was well known and that the expulsion of the Palestinian population was an explicit Zionist objective. In his seminal book, The Question of Palestine, Said notes that in 1895, the father of political Zionism, Theodore Herzl, had written in his diaries that something would have to be done about the Palestinians. We shall have to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries while denying it any employment in our own country. Both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 was breathtaking in its colonialist pretense that Palestine, which was still part of the Ottoman Empire at the time, and with a 92% Palestinian population, could be turned into a homeland for another people without prejudicing the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities. This mendacity, the subsequent failure to protect those existing communities under the British mandate, is an enduring stain on British history. On 11 August 1919, 
Lord Balfour wrote in a memorandum to then Acting Foreign Secretary Lord Curzon. In Palestine, we do not propose even to go through the form of consulting the wishes of the present inhabitants of the country. The four great powers are committed to Zionism, and Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long tradition, in present needs, in future hopes of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. Notwithstanding the historical records going back centuries of Palestinian life and ownership of the land, <clears throat> and the fact that at the time Israel declared itself a state in 1948, still two-thirds of the population were Palestinians and only 6% of land in Palestine was Jewish-owned, there has not been any official acknowledgement that Israel was created on the ruins of Palestinian society, as Saeed put it. It is also still not widely understood in the West that Palestinians were driven from their homeland as part of a meticulously planned operation of ethnic cleansing, rather than having become refugees as an accidental result of war. In 2004, Israeli historian Benny Morris stated candidly in an interview regarding the events of 1948, that is the situation Zionism faced a Jewish state would not have come into being without the uprooting of 700,000 Palestinians. Therefore, it was necessary to uproot them. There was no choice but to expel that population. Following the expulsion of their Palestinian inhabitants in the late 1940s and afterwards, more than 400 ancient Palestinian villages were destroyed. Some turned into forests and nature reserves or repopulated with Jewish residents and areas renamed as recorded by Israeli historians such as Ilan Pape in The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine and Noga Kadman's Erased from Space and Consciousness. Regarding the occupation, there is no shortage of credible information concerning serious violations of Palestinian human rights, including from Palestinian and Israeli NGOs, international NGOs, the United Nations, faith organisations and academics. These issues are sometimes discussed in the media in Israel, but are barely mentioned in the Western media. <clears throat> Dutch Middle East correspondent Joris Leyendijk, in his book Fit to Print, Misrepresenting the Middle East, explains the way Israel deals with potential PR disasters from the occupation, such as images of Palestinian women and children killed by Israeli bullets. Sincere-looking Israelis immediately would appear on Western television channels and in opinion pages to express their regret and emphasise that Israel never meant to kill innocent children, women or senior citizens. What would the Jewish state gain from that? Often the same spokespeople would go on to question whether the victims really had died from Israeli bullets. This would be investigated most carefully and that would take some time Next, the same people would explain how murky such violent occurrences in the disputed territories were, and that terrorists deliberately hid in residential areas in the hope that Israel would accidentally kill Palestinian civilians. This was how the Israeli government tried to minimise the damage, leaving the occupation out of it, distancing themselves from events, isolating them as rare incidents, sowing doubt on the facts, and shifting the blame. 
In the first three years of the Second Intifada, more than three times as many Palestinian civilians died from Israeli violence than vice versa. And still the talk was of the bloody attacks, really, of the bloody occupation. The denial of Palestinian existence also takes the form of the, of the denial of Palestinian humanity. When I worked in Gaza, I was appalled by the terminology used in the Israeli media, such as referring to particular Palestinian towns as nests of terror, implying the Palestinians were simultaneously, one, terrorists, and two, vermin. The success of Israeli wars on Gaza, in which thousands of Palestinian civilians have been killed and many more injured, are referred to by the IDF as part of its mowing the lawn strategy. I recall that during Israel's Operation Cast Leg War on Gaza in 2008-9, Israel had bombed part of the Commonwealth War Cemetery, but initially denied doing so. Pictures of broken tombstones appeared in the outraged Australian mainstream media, next to images of Hamas fighters, the implication being that Palestinians in Gaza had destroyed Aussie graves, not Israel. Apart from being a complete lie, was also grossly unfair, given the fact that the Commonwealth War Cemetery in Gaza has been lovingly tended for decades by generations of the Palestinian Girada family, who have made it a peaceful oasis of beautiful lawn, trees and flowers for those Australians, New Zealanders and other Commonwealth soldiers from the First and Second World Wars buried there. In a matter of unfortunate irony for the Palestinians homeless from the war, Israel later paid compensation to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission for some of the damage it had done to the graves. But I didn't see any articles about that in the Australian media. Israeli journalist Gidon Levy has stated that the Israeli media is dehumanising the Palestinians systematically year after year, decade after decade, and that is, in my view, the best explanation for this unusual phenomenon in which the Israelis live so much in peace with themselves. If Palestinians are not human, they cannot have human rights, as demonstrated so dramatically in the 2018 Israeli nation-state law, providing that only Jews have the fundamental human right to self-determination in that country. The third rhetorical device that silences Palestinian perspectives is summed up in the words of Israeli historian Benny Morris. We are the greater victims in the course of history, and we are also the greater potential victim. Even though we are oppressing the Palestinians, we are the weaker side here. This narrative of being the eternal victim and of survival at any cost, notwithstanding Israel being one of the largest military powers in the world, thanks to US aid of $142.3 billion since World War II, is the foundation upon which political Zionism rests which enables it to retain global sympathy and to justify its treatment of the Palestinians. As Edward Said stressed on many occasions, it is absolutely right and necessary that the historic persecution of Jewish people and their suffering through the Holocaust is acknowledged and condemned. But in the politics of dispossession, Said asks, how long can the history of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust be used as a fence to exempt Israel from arguments and sanctions against it for its behaviour towards the Palestinians, arguments and sanctions that were used against other repressive governments, such as South Africa. Said maintained that you cannot continue to victimise someone else 
just because you yourself were a victim once. This is 3CR and you are listening to human rights lawyer, former politician and activist Melissa Park delivering the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecture. I challenge anyone with an open mind to visit Hebron, for example, and not be profoundly moved by the desolation of that proud ancient city, its empty markets and tormented Palestinian inhabitants who are forced to hide uh, their children in their homes and shelter them from the rocks thrown by armed settlers who patrol the old city, taunting its people and inflicting random violence while basking in the protection of the IDF. As with most other places in Palestine, there is no doubt when you are there about who is the victim and who is the aggressor. Now, this is not to suggest that Palestinians are always blameless. They are not, as is clear from rocket attacks on Israel from Gaza, suicide bombings, knife attacks, and other occurrences that make the news in the Western media. Violence against civilians can never be justified. But rather than being random acts of violence committed because of innate wickedness or hatred of Jews, as such events are frequently portrayed by Israeli spokespeople, there is a context in which these events occur that that never get spoken about. That is Palestinian dispossession and more than half a century of military occupation that has left many young Palestinians feeling as though there is nothing to live and hope for. Meanwhile, the State of Israel is able to escape criticism by passing off its own usually far more deadly response as necessary for its security. The fourth device to divert attention from the harsh reality of occupation is to attack the messenger. Eminent academics like John Dugard and Richard Falk, who have held the role of UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories, have been viciously defamed for reporting objectively on the situation. John Lyons, the former Middle East correspondent for the Australian newspaper, noted in his excellent book, Balcony Over Jerusalem, I was coming to realise that when you write about Israel, you are open to a level of abuse I had never seen before. As a journalist, you quickly learnt that you could have a very pleasant life if you wrote what Israel wanted you to. In contrast, if you wrote what you saw in front of you, such as the massive growth in Israeli settlements in the West Bank, your editors would be hit with complaints and your professionalism would be impugned. The attacks that AJAC and other groups made was that they would slowly chip away at my credibility, often without my even knowing. Sometimes I only found out about them much later. Earlier this year, Sophie McNeil, who was for several years the ABC's Middle East correspondent based in Jerusalem, published her superb book entitled We Can't Say We Didn't Know. She writes that covering Israel and Palestine is one of the hardest jobs in journalism. Pro-Israel advocacy groups relentlessly target, bully and attempt to intimidate reporters in a way I have never experienced while covering any other story. In the book, Sophie recounts a disgraceful attack made upon her by then Federal Labor MP Michael Danby in the form of an advertisement in the Australian Jewish News paid for by taxpayers, falsely accusing Sophie of biased reporting and showing her photo stolen from her personal Facebook page with what appeared to be blood dripping down her face. The ALP leader at the time, Bill Shorten, apologised to Sophie for Danby's behaviour. Edward Said too was repeatedly targeted because of his effective advocacy for the Palestinian cause. 
being called the Professor of Terror by some. In an article in 1999 entitled Defamation Revisionist Style, Saeed defended himself as follows. Viner is a propagandist who, like many others before him, have tried to depict the dispossession of Palestinians as ideological fiction. This has been a steady theme of Zionist information since the 1930s. He never gives actual sources, but uses innuendos and fraudulent calculations and unsubstantiated assertions. If someone like Edward Said is a liar, runs the argument, how can we believe all those peasants who say they were driven off their land? Dutch Middle East correspondent Leyendijk describes in his book how after just a few articles, an unstoppable flood came his way of faxes containing crucifixes, threats and accusations of anti-Semitism. The deployment of accusations of anti-Semitism against critics of Israel has been occurring for a long time. The former Israeli government minister, the late Shulamit Aloni, said, the Holocaust is used to justify everything that Israel does to the Palestinians. And the charge of anti-Semitism is a trick that is always used to ward off criticism of the Israeli government. As recently noted by illustrious American Jewish scholar, Professor Noam Chomsky, 50 years ago, the distinguished Israel statesman Abba Eban wrote that one of the chief tasks of any dialogue with the Gentile world is to prove that the distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism is not a distinction at all. Anti-Zionism is merely the new anti-Semitism. By anti-Zionism, he means criticism of the policies of the government of Israel and some sympathy for Palestinians. That principle has become a last-ditch defence of apologists for Israel's crimes under the occupation. Any critic, any proponent of Palestinian rights can be tarred as an anti-Semite. This weapon has recently been wielded to great effect against Jeremy Corbyn in a campaign of vulgar deceit and slander that is shocking even beyond the disgraceful norm. In addition, distinguished Jewish-Australian academic Dr Peter Slezak has identified a pervasive rhetorical trick that the lobby exploits. For example, Britain's chief rabbi, Ephraim Miovis, identifies Israel and Zionism as a noble and integral part of Judaism. In other words, identifying Israel as a Jewish state representing all Jews worldwide is to slander critics of Israel as critics of Jewish people. Dr Slizak notes the warning by American historian Norman Finkelstein, the son of Holocaust survivors, that the real enemies of the Jews are those who debase the memory of Jewish suffering by equating principled opposition to Israel's illegal and immoral policies with anti-Semitism. When receiving last year's Jerusalem Peace Prize, courageous Jewish-Australian journalist and author Anthony Lowenstein urged that we must oppose the dangerous conflation of real anti-Semitism with legitimate criticism of the Jewish state. When real anti-Semitism is rising and a serious threat to Jewish life and liberty, conflating the two is pernicious and diminishes the real dangers to us all. The ultimate absurdity is the sneering of progressive Jews, including Holocaust survivors and their descendants, who in the best Jewish tradition of upholding human rights dare to question or speak out about Israel's brutality as anti-Semites. There is an implicit assumption in this that the Zionist lobby speaks for all Jewish people 
and that there is only one correct way to be Jewish. It is starkly telling that people whose lives have been spent as human rights defenders, public intellectuals, educators, artists and journalists are targeted as anti-Semites because they criticise the Israeli government. Meanwhile, the State of Israel is accumulating an impressive set of tyrants and undemocratic regimes as allies, while real anti-Semites, including white supremacist right-wing nationalists, are left alone to foment hatred, racism and violence. Unfortunately, the weaponisation of anti-Semitism to protect Israel from criticism has been taken to new lengths as the pro-Israel lobby urges governments, parliaments, universities all around the world to adopt the definition of anti-Semitism that has been developed by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA. Dr Slezak explains that while the definition itself is unobjectionable, that anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews, what is deeply problematic are the 11 accompanying examples used to illustrate the definition, of which six concern criticism of Israel. He notes the concern expressed even by the author of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, Kenneth S. Stern, about the McCarthy-like use of the IHRA definition to suppress political speech, as well as the conclusion of renowned barrister Geoffrey Robertson QC that the IHRA definition is liable to chill legitimate criticism of human rights abuses against Palestinians by defaming <coughs> critics of Israel as anti-Semitic. As an example, in 2017, the University of Central Lancaster banned a meeting on debunking misconceptions on Palestine, saying it contravened the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism adopted by the UK government. This led to more than 200 UK academics signing a statement condemning the use of the IHRA definition to silence discussion of Israel's violation of Palestinian rights using the thin disguise of concern about anti-Semitism. Just two days ago, the UK Education Secretary wrote to the Vice-Chancellors of all British universities demanding they adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism with the government threatening to suspend funding streams if universities do not comply. The NGO independent Jewish Voices Canada has documented more than two dozen examples of the IHRA definition being used to suppress advocacy for Palestinian rights in Europe and North America. The Harvard Law Review this year noted that 27 states of the United States have adopted laws penalising businesses participation in the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, and such laws are pending in another 14 states. The Trump administration issued an executive order in late December 2019 requiring executive departments and agencies to enforce the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, including the controversial examples. Since then, the US Department of Education has commenced two separate investigations into the University of California at Los Angeles regarding events discussing Palestinian rights. Glenn Greenwald, writing in The Intercept, has warned that the criminalisation of political speech and activism against Israel has become one of the gravest threats to free speech in the West. On US campuses, punishment of pro-Palestinian students for expressing criticisms of Israel is so commonplace 
that the Centre for Constitutional Rights refers to it as the Palestine exception to free speech. Here in Australia, in March 2020, at Senate Estimates, the question of adoption of the IHRA definition by the Australian Government was raised by Liberal Senator Erica Betts, who criticised an article published by the ABC. He was advised that the Australian Government, as a member of IHRA since June 2019, has convened an interdepartmental committee to ensure Australia upholds the requirements of IHRA. Friends, these are troubling developments, and it is important that we all remain vigilant about encroachments on freedom of speech here in Australia and elsewhere. Nevertheless, despite the rather, rather depressing account I've given tonight, I believe there are grounds for hope. The vast majority of the world's nations already support Palestinian self-determination, as is clear from resolutions on Palestine at the UN General Assembly, where each nation has an equal vote. The only reason international support has not translated into international action through the UN Security Council is because of the US veto. Even that may be changing. Last year, a Gallup survey found that Americans' support for Israel had declined to the lowest point in a decade. Significantly, the Black Lives Matter movement has endorsed the struggle for Palestinian human rights, including supporting the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign. And some of you among the audience will have read the groundbreaking article in July this year titled Yavne, A Jewish Case for Equality in Palestine by Peter Beinart, an Orthodox Jew, a liberal Zionist and a professor of journalism and political science in New York. In it, Beinart points out that the two-state solution, which has come to mean a fragmented Palestine under de facto Israeli control, no longer provides hope. He makes the strong case that averting a future in which oppression degenerates into ethnic cleansing requires a vision that can inspire not just Palestinians, but the world. Equality offers that. The demand for equality has manifested in the civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid movement and the Black Lives Matter movement retains enormous moral power. Israel's own leaders recognise this. In 2003, future Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert warned that when Palestinians replaced the struggle against occupation with the struggle for one man, one vote, it would prove a much more popular struggle and ultimately a much more powerful one. Beinart also dealt with one of the shibboleths underpinning support for the Jewish state. For generations, Jews have seen a Jewish state as a tikkun, a repair, a way of overcoming the legacy of the Holocaust. But it hasn't worked. The real tikkun is equality, a Jewish home that is also a Palestinian home. Beinart was immediately attacked by prominent Jewish figures like Alan Dershowitz, as seeking the final solution for Jews. Another leading Jewish figure said Beinart's appeal for justice and equal rights for Palestinians was as bad as Holocaust denial. The ferocity of the response to Beinart's article indicates that it has hit a nerve. The pro-Israel lobby claims that supporting a one-state solution is genocidal because it would mean the end of Israel as a Jewish state. The response to this is firstly that it is farcical to equate a call for equality and non-discrimination between Israeli Jews and Palestinians as genocidal. Secondly, the one-state solution is an outcome the Israeli state 
will have brought upon itself through its continued settlement building, making a viable Palestinian state physically impossible, and its increasingly clear indications that it will never willingly allow an independent and fully sovereign Palestinian state to be established. Israel's leaders may be comfortable with the status quo, in which they maintain a matrix of domination over the Palestinians indefinitely, but the rest of the world is not. Indeed, just days after Beinart's article, the respected Israeli human rights NGO Yesh Din published a legal opinion stating that the crime against humanity of apartheid is being committed in the West Bank. The perpetrators are Israelis and the victims are Palestinians. This opinion follows that of eminent scholars John Dugard and John Reynolds writing in the European Journal of International Law that Israeli practices in the occupied territories are not only reminiscent of, and in some cases worse than, apartheid as it existed in South Africa, but are in breach of the legal prohibition of apartheid. This legal opinion sought to advance legal analysis of the situation in the West Bank and Gaza beyond the habitual focus on specific actions undertaken within the occupation and reveal the holistic portrait of a systematic apparatus of domination that connects the dots between discrete and disparate rights violations, illuminating them against a common backdrop. Hannah Arendt, the conscious pariah, whose work Edward Said admired, had initially supported Zionism, but ended up turning against its ethnic nationalism in favour of a binational state, writing clear-sightedly in support of a one-state solution. She argued that a just society would require equality and political liberation for all people residing within its borders, not just for those from a particular group. Edward Said also recognised the actuality that Palestinians and Israeli Jews are now fully implicated in each other's lives and political destinies. And he considered that the only way of rising beyond the endless back-and-forth violence and dehumanisation is to admit the universality and integrity of the other's experience and to begin to plan a common life together. Edward Said's close friendship with Jewish-Israeli conductor Daniel Barenboim led to them establishing the East-West Divan Orchestra, inviting musicians from the Middle East to play together, different notes played with one accord, creating harmony out of discord. Said noted that, in the end, it is finally the humblest and the most basic instrument that will bring peace, and certainly that instrument is not a fighter plane or a rifle butt. This instrument is self-conscious, rational struggle conducted in the interests of common human community. Friends, it is my view that despite the enormous resistance that will inevitably occur, the cause of equality for Jewish Israelis and Palestinians in one binational state is fast approaching. Firstly, because equality is a concept easily understood by everyone and impossible to deny in its moral clarity. And secondly, because there appear to be no alternatives that are both viable and just. Hannah Arendt and Edward Said have shown us that we all have a role to play in championing that cause, in being the conscious pariahs and amateur intellectuals who keep challenging authority, speaking truth and asking the question, but why not equality? I conclude this lecture with a beautiful poem by Australian-Palestinian poet and playwright, Samah Sabawi, 
as quoted in distinguished academic Stuart Rees's important new book, Cruelty or Humanity. We will cultivate hope in the seeds we plant in place of uprooted trees, in the prose and the verses of our poetry, in homes we build from the rubble after their demolition, in songs of love and passion, in strokes of oil on canvas and in prayers in mosques and churches, and there, within the suffocating spaces, between their towers, walls and checkpoints, we will teach our children how to dance to the rhythms of life. Thank you. And that was the second part of the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecture, presented by Melissa Park. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Bombs is a protest against like all the food waste. We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste, make meals from that food, and serves them up to people who need a feed. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. We need to have a working vehicle. So we do need money to keep our van going. Very occasionally we have to buy some food. To donate to our current fundraiser, go to www.chaft.org forward slash project forward slash Food Not Bombs pandemic support. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Yesterday I spoke with Cathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence and it was late Sunday afternoon Chicago time and as I pointed out they now have a president elect Joe Biden as the 46th president of that country and asked her what the feeling amongst the people was, her friends. Well I think that there are many people who are wondering what has happened to our country that there were so many, many people who wanted to continue a Trump presidency, particularly in areas that were hardest hit by the COVID pandemic, because he unquestionably badly mismanaged any kind of um, guidance for people to cope with the pandemic. And quite likely, 
his administration didn't um, secure lives. They, they threatened lives. And yet we're also um, so very aware that in the duration of this entire campaign season, never has enough attention been paid to the climate catastrophe that we're all facing, to the unrestricted militarism that almost dominates like a religion in this country. Never was enough attention paid to the military-industrial complex, the prison-industrial complex. There are so many issues to be faced. And, of course, President Biden will kind of enter with a bare pantry. He's, he's, it's, as one person put it, it's as though he's going to be trying to put out a wildfire with a bucket of water uh, because the Republicans can continue to now say, oh, no, no, we, we can't have a budget deficit. We can't cut loose the funds to deal with this or with that. And, of course, my friends and I believe that we should take those funds directly out of the bloated military budget. But will uh, President Biden uh, have the courage to take those kinds of steps? He is the person who led us into war in Iraq. He tripled the size of the prison population. So um, we, we recognize that we are uh, dealing with a centrist and a militarist at a time when I believe those policies are badly outdated. What about racism and the police? People have spoken in many, many places across the United States, and I think people of color, particularly young people of color, who have and will continue, I believe, to lead demonstrations um, and know ways to make their voices heard. And that's my hope, my great hope, that they'll find increasing support and alliance with uh, people who've been perhaps the more traditional leaders of movements. But uh, the police brutality, the police torture, the killing of people of color who are unarmed and unaccused, uh, the filling of the courtrooms and the jails, I think will be challenged on the streets and steadily. And, you know, Kamala Harris was a prosecutor. Joe Biden, as I said, helped to build his own strength politically by uh, leaning on people who wanted to build the prison industrial complex. So I hope he'll say he's sorry. I wish he would commute the sentence of every person who was ever uh, put in prison for marijuana or a small amount of crack cocaine or many of the other uh, people who were locked up because of the drug wars. I'm just wondering how many people know about her record as a as a prosecutor and attorney general in California. I don't think that's been discussed much. I think there's been a great desire to say that, you know, the glass ceiling is broken and a woman has become vice president, a, a black woman of Indian descent. And, you know, those are all facts. And that's, um, you know, a good thing to see the, the grip on those positions being loosened. But um, in terms of Kamala Harris's perspective on law and justice, I don't think she sees war making and the murder and the slaughter that goes with war making as being uh, heinous crimes. And rather, I think she has uh, built a reputation as a, a very sharp prosecutor who can um, intimidate people into pleading guilty or being possibly uh, facing draconian sentencing situations. Big issue also is COVID-19 and the dearth of health cover for a large 
part of the American public. What's been said about that? Well, again, what have we stockpiled? We, we've stockpiled weapons and we've stockpiled the pharmaceuticals that, you know, enable big pharma to make loads and loads of money, but we haven't stockpiled what people have needed in local areas to be able to adequately deal with the pandemic. And certainly uh, in the Midwest, the numbers have soared and they continue to skyrocket. And there are many places where they just don't have enough hospital beds or there never was enough health care in the first place. And the health care is so enormously expensive. Even, you know, getting a, a swift test can cost people uh, far more than they can afford. So people have not gone in for tests because they can't afford it. It's a terrible comment on on our society uh, when you see where our our resources have gone. Uh, and, and also, we haven't had the education needed. I was on a phone call, a Zoom call yesterday with 15 people in Canada from different parts all across Canada, and they all were, you know, obeying the, the sort of mandates that said, don't have large gatherings that could be spreaders and, and wear masks and avoid uh, public transportation, but wear masks if you're on public transportation. And then, you know, we look at the president of the United States holding events that are guaranteed to be super spreaders, even after he's already had COVID and, and could be affected by long-term consequences. What are the hopes for women? Because we know what Trump was like and what he he didn't promise for women and his attitude to women. What's Biden's record? Well, it's certainly not as bad as that of President Trump. President Trump, I think, behaved in ways that were so openly misogynist and cruel. So I don't think we would find that um, President-elect Biden will be so unpolished. But in terms of care and concern for women and children whose basic needs aren't being met in the United States, again, I, I think he's going to have to free up the resources. And I think that the the group that he has always identified with has been willing again and again to give priority to the wealthy and the already empowered people in our society, many of whom are people whose wealth is predicated on getting ready for wars and waging wars. And I just have seen no evidence that Biden is going to turn his back on that militarism. We hear stories here in Australia all the time about the the poor wages that people get and the, the exploitation of workers not being paid even the minimum wage. I believe it's a lot worse in the United States with what people actually paid for the work they do. Well, it is kind of amazing that people have somehow, from generation to generation, been bamboozled into thinking that one person's labor is worth 8 or 10 or 15 times more than the labor of another person because the first person might have a certain level of privilege and education in the first place. But certainly COVID-19 has really displayed something very, very different to us in terms of essential work, the work of people 
running transportation systems in hospitals, in healthcare centers, in uh, food production, in uh, the sewage and sanitation. Uh, the people who are essential are many of them the people who are the least paid in our society. So why should we think that um, such a person's uh, wage when the people are so essential, like somebody working in sewage and sanitation, should be uh, just a teeny fraction of the wage of somebody who's maybe an insurance broker or um, working in a big pharmaceutical company. Can I go back to what you said right at the beginning, Kathy? 70 million people voted for Trump. It's an amazing figure, isn't it? I think it certainly should give us pause, and I think we should... um, take a deep breath, keep our wits about us, and ask hard questions. I think Fox News has a great deal of responsibility for shaping education in this country, and Fox News is in complete collusion with the weapon makers and the war makers, and it's in their interest not to educate people to have a different perspective. And So I think that people just hear again and again and again that your interests are best served by the military, by big corporations, and the people who are launching earnest challenges are relegated to being uh, the radical, dangerous, socialist, communist left, and and they should be feared and they should be sidelined. so it's, when when people keep hearing that again and again and again, they become fearful and they think, oh, yeah, those people will take something from me, when actually they're being fleeced and robbed by those who gobble up their taxes and continually give them to the people who do the worst things for the environment and the worst things for foreign relations with other countries. I suppose you know we suffer from the same thing here in Australia with Murdoch controlling almost all of the newspapers in every state of the country and also TV and online. And some of the headlines in the newspapers are absolutely appalling. But he gets away with it and he's been getting away with it for a long, long time now. Well, I was glad to see in The Age that there is a report coming out that uncovers the war crimes that were committed by Australian Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan, and we need to be confronted by that kind of information. I think here in the United States, you know, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction covers every, you know, incidence of fraud that's suggested to them, and they get the information and they write the reports. (laughs) When President Trump finally read just a part of one of those reports, he said, this stuff ought to be locked up. This stuff is terrible. Don't let anybody see this. But this is the kind of thing we need to see and and to better understand the situations that have gotten uh, so atrociously difficult for people bearing the brunt of the wars we've been waging. I'm thinking of Afghanistan and Iraq, but also um, you know Gaza, which has been bludgeoned by Israel and Yemen, constantly under attack and siege with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and that coalition. Finally, Cassie. The movement for peace, the movement for anti-war, I'd imagine it's been a pretty hard four years. 
What are you looking forward to? Is there anything you're looking forward to in that area? Well, on January 25th, there will be uh, an international day of action calling for an end to the war on Yemen. And I'm looking forward to people uh, raising their voices, uh, joining the King's Bay Plowshares who will go off to serve their prison sentences. But um, getting ready on January 22nd all around the world to uh, clamor for uh, immediate ratification of the Treaty for the Prevention of the Nuclear, the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons in all of the NATO countries in particular, which none of which have ratified that treaty. Uh, so I think that um, the movement for black life has been um, brilliant about trying to connect the dots between materialism and militarism and uh, racism. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday coming up. So in January, it won't just be the inauguration of uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris, I think there will be an inauguration of many, many, many movement groups saying, we're not going away. We're not going to be silenced this time. We know what happens when we go to sleep, and we have to be wide awake and ready to go. Thank you, Kathy, once again. I've been speaking with Kathy Kelly, co-founder of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and now one of the co-coordinators of that peace organisation in the United States. Hi, Hi. we're from Braver College and you're listening to Free CR Community Radio on 8.55am. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. The Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support. On Monday 26th of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Japarung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide, and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. 1. Come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 9651 and let him know what you think. 3. 
educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarang Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. The free move movement in Thailand shows no signs of abating, rather going from strength daily. Watching from the UK, but with his finger on the pulse, is Giles Ulpacorn, Thai activist and writer, a member of the socialist group Turn Left. He's lived in exile in the UK since 2009, after being charged with His Majesty, insulting the King. Giles, I last spoke with you at the end of September, and you maintained at that time that the movement needed to keep up the momentum and spread to all sectors of the population, especially organised workers. How do you assess the present situation there? Well, the situation at the moment is that the protests are continuing, but in a similar form to what we saw last month. And um, as yet, there has been little evidence that um, people are prepared to increase the, the pressure on the government make the country ungovernable, which is the only way you can get rid of the military dictatorship. One of the key issues is that activists need to approach trade unionists and go with them to various workplaces and start serious discussions about strike action. We've seen a number of protests organised by all groups of militant trade unionists, which is good, and I don't know whether discussions taking place about strike action, but I, I haven't heard anything to indicate that, that that is the case as yet. And the danger is that um, the demands of the movement will be kicked into the Houses of Parliament, the electoral process and so on. And uh, if they, they are kicked into the uh, parliamentary process, then um, the demands won't be met in full. Uh, the only demand that that might be half will be the, the issue of amending the constitution, but, but really the demand is to have the military constitution scrapped and, and a new one written. So there are processes trying to woo uh, the movement by promising that, that the, the constitution can be amended in some parts, and that will lead to a really shoddy compromise if that is agreed upon. As yet, the movement is saying that they're not going to compromise on, on the, the three main demands, which is that the Prime Minister resign, that the Constitution be rewritten, that the monarchy be reformed. There's also indications that um, there's a sort of divide and rule process going on. So there have been meetings between secondary school students and people concerned with running schools, Ministry of Education. Which are taking up some of the demands of the, of the school students about the backward and conservative nature of, of the school regime. I mean, it's good that, that, that the school students are pushing for this, but the danger is that you know they may it may help to dissipate the anger among school students. So we need to to wait and see what happens. I think. What is this? school regime that you're concerned about? 
the school regime that, that the students are concerned about is things like, you know, um, schools determining how long people can wear their hair, both um, men and women, and on some occasions dragging students off to cut their hair or whatever. Also, corporal punishment, which isn't really allowed, but it, it, it happens. They want also to be able to people to dress according to the to the uh, gender preference, which is which is a very good thing. There are people are also concerned about the, the content of, of of lessons and so on. Who sets the lessons? Is there a particular body? Uh, the Ministry of Education sets a lot of the lessons. You have problems with a lot of that. Well, I mean, it's a very conservative um, curriculum, not surprisingly, because it reflects the conservative nature of of those in power in, in society. One of the demands that, that young people, both school students and university students, are, are calling for is that, that the curriculum in, in educational institutions reflect a number of views, both on historical issues and, and present social issues, which, which isn't the case at the moment. Is the Constitution a fairly new one? Has that been brought in by the dictatorship? Yes, the Constitution at present was drafted after the Yudhjan Ochao's military coup in 2014, and it's a very anti-democratic constitution, unlike the the, the more progressive constitution of 1997. It's one of the problems, it's one of the reasons why the youth managed to, to cheat in the, the elections that were held last year, despite not winning the majority of the popular vote. What about Parliament? Has that also changed since the dictatorship took control? Well, one of the, one of the issues which, which maintains the dictatorship is that um, the Senate is completely has been completely appointed by the military, and the Senate comes together with the elected Parliament um, in order to choose the Prime Minister. So the military have an inbuilt majority without actually having to win too many votes. In addition to that, the, the military-controlled courts have tried to uh, have actually dissolved. Um, opposition parties try to ban opposition politicians and this is how they maintain their uh, facade of, of being elected. It's really a parliamentary dictatorship run by the military. When you say that the, the students, the university students should be engaging with the trade unions and the, the workers, is there a class difference between the students and the workers that's in the way, in a sense? I don't think that's the issue. I mean, when I'm talking about the entire working class, I'm not just talking about factory workers, and although factory workers are important, but also workers, white-collar workers who work in banks and offices, and transport workers and so on. And uh, you know, a significant number of student parents fall into that category. And it's not difficult for for people to communicate with each other. And some of the more militant trade unionists have have joined the the students 
Japi Food Lane protests and, and, and are still organizing these protests. So I think the, the, the obstacle is the, the, the feeling that, um, and, and the belief that economic power of workers can be decisive. That is something that, that hasn't actually been taken on board by uh, the leadership of the movement. Has there been any history of that? There were large workers' strikes in the 1970s leading up to the overthrow of the military in 1973. But the reason for that is that there was an organised left, the Communist Party of Thailand, for all its sins, because it has some policies which I disagree with. But but it, because there there was an organised left party, importance was attached to, to the power of the working class. At the moment, there is no organized left, and, and the number of people arguing for a third to, to the working class is, is quite small. But without this, I can't see how the, the movement could make the, the country ungovernable. Is there a socialist movement in Thailand? There is no socialist movement in Thailand. There are individuals who identify themselves as socialists, but that's not the same thing because unless you, you organize it in a group, organize in a party, you can't really argue within a movement for a new direction for the struggle. Well, how is it going to happen, that new direction? Well, it can only happen if people start to think, well, there'll be too many compromises if we allow this the situation to go on as it is now, and that we, we need to find ways of, of upping the action. It, it, it will only happen like that. I mean, sections of some of the more right-wing sections of the movement have talked about making compromises with the, about the free demand, but, but the majority of the movement has said that they're not prepared to make these compromises. So, you know, they must be people thinking very hard and arguing and discussing about the way forward. The only thing is whether or not they they decide that approaching the organised workers or even people not in trading as the workplace is the way forward. Do you believe that the regime is up the ante to a significant point against the activists? Well, I think they tried with the water cannon and so on. But I think what they're trying to do is to bide their time, offer meaningless compromises, well, hardly any, and hope that the people agree to, to a shoddy deal and, and that the movement is dissipated. So I don't believe that they're, they're, they're planning to a harsh crackdown, although for the leaders, the various leaders of the movement, they're facing multiple charges have to appear in court multiple times in different areas of the country and so on, face jail terms. And so that's, a, that's an issue as well because one of the extra demands needs to be the release of political prisoners and the docking of all charges. And people have talked about this, but nothing as yet as concrete has, has come of it. Do you have any figures on the number of political prisoners? Well, they're not necessarily in jail at the moment, but, you know, the, you would have 
key activists who have about six or seven, eight charges against them, which will gradually, if nothing is done, they will have to uh, come to court at some point. Uh, the wheels of the, the courts move very slowly. And of course, if the movement is dissipated, then they will spend years going through these processes. Unlikely that, that they will they will get off, but we never we don't know. I mean, it's, it's foolish to to make predictions, but that what needs to be done is to, to keep up the pressure on the government. And are the activists connecting with the provincial cities and also the rural areas in their struggle? Uh, they certainly are. I mean, in many ways, people in provincial cities and um, in the north, in the south, in the east, northeast, and small areas are, are staging their own protests and so on. And school students are, are doing the same in their local schools. Is there any possibility in any of those places that there could be a revolt against the, the military? Well, um, the movement itself is a revolt against the military. So the, the revolt against the military is taking place, but it, it's taking place in the form of, of street protests, which are great. Some of the street protests in, in Bangkok and some of the largest cities outside Bangkok have, have been very big. But as I said, the, the key issue is how to make the country ungovernable. If you were there, Giles, what would you be doing now? Well, I would be trying to argue that activists go and visit workers in, in workplaces because it's not you can't just call for people to go on strike. You've actually got to argue with people. You've got to talk. You've got to listen to their fears about going on strike and, and so on and and, and engage in, in a positive discussion about it. That's what I and other people who, who are interested, who, who are left-leaning would be doing. I mean, I'm doing it in a, in a, in a roundabout way through my writings on my blog, but I mean, that really isn't enough. You need people on the ground within Thailand. What about the role of social media at this stage? The role of social media is is interesting. I mean, the because the the movement is is led by young people, they're they're very um, skilled at using social media and so on, and they do use it. But what's interesting is that um, a few years ago, when when small groups of students were making um, sort of small protests and symbolic protests. Those students were arguing that um, you didn't need a mass movement in an era of social movement, of social media. But um, the present young people who are leading the protests uh, clearly disagree with that, and, and they understand the need for building a mass movement and not just relying on social media. What do you see as the significance of the king coming back? He doesn't really want to perform much of his duties. He'd rather spend his time in Germany with his harem. He was advised to come back and try and keep up <coughs> the spirits of, of, of the royalists. A number of 
leading activists, a lot of them in fact, believe that the, the king is, is powerful and so on, which is, which is not the case at all. I mean, he is a puppet of the, of the military, always has been. His father was also. But, he, but especially Wachiralokon, he's very weak. He's, he doesn't show any leadership abilities. Uh, at times, he, he finds it hard to string a sentence together. I think it's a desperate attempt in a way. What is significant is that the way that, that the movement is, has the confidence, the young people have this confidence to criticize the king, and they're doing it openly. At the moment, they're talking about reforming the, the monarchy, but, but there are many people who are grumbling and saying, well, if they're not prepared to do that, let's just go for a abolition of the monarchy. It's unprecedented in the, in the last 10, 20 years. Um, there have been periods in prior history when the monarchy has been very um, unpopular and in the 1930s, but also in the 1970s. So I always thought it was possible. It's a question of when that would happen and how it would happen. A really good thing that it's happening right now. Do you think there's a concern that students and the fellow activists will just get tired because it's been going on for a long time now? It must be very draining. And you just wonder what their parents are talking to these young people. Well, I think I think there is a danger that people will get tired. As I've said, I think they need to up the action and think about ways to make the country ungovernable. In terms of the parents, I mean, they're probably a mixed bunch. You know, there there, there will be parents who are very supportive of the protests and and have probably joined them. It's, it's not the the large protests numbering hundreds of thousands are not just young people, students. There were older people, people who've been on pro-democracy protests 10, 20 years ago. The parents, uh, many of them will be supportive. There will be other parents who don't want their children to go on, on protests and so on. But whether the young people are going to listen to them is, is another matter. You also said last time that nothing will happen much until you get a million people on the street. Do you still believe that? We have seen hundreds of thousands of people on the streets now, and, and that is that is a, a, an increase, a significant increase in, in the momentum of the movement. But I think that, you know, it's not just street protests that, that get rid of dictatorships. And there must be many exiles, such as yourself, carefully watching what's happening. Oh, um, yeah, certainly there's... there's Exiles, but also Thai people living abroad in, in various countries throughout the world who, who aren't necessarily political exiles are also watching what's going on and commenting and so on. Okay, final comments? I suppose, I mean, the, there are lessons to be learned. I think, I think it's important that, that, that Thai activists look at um, the lessons from, from other countries, from Hong Kong, from France, from Sudan, from other places, and and look at the the tactics that are necessary to overthrow the military regime. And I, and I think that carrying on in the same way risks a shoddy compromise in the end.
Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Giles Ung Bakron, Thai activist and writer, who's now living in exile in the UK. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media is a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Tune into the 2020 Beyond the Bar CD launch. On air, Thursday the 12th of November. Despite the lifting of some COVID restrictions, we'll be launching this year's CD on air and online. This broadcast event will feature highlights from the July broadcast and officially launch the 2020 CD. Order your free copy of the CD now from 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020 been locked up for the last five years and I always run in the family you know, there's that, that many that much of my family and it's not funny this is a point not only in here and in Dame Phyllis too you know what I mean so, and there's a lot of women, Aboriginal women locked up to it at the moment it's not a decrease in, in the last few years it's just more or less increasing this doesn't make sense sometimes you know Tune in on Thursday the 12th of November at 2pm for the launch Early in the program, we heard the second part of the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecture with Human Rights Defender Melissa Park. But today, Melissa Park needs our help to fight for free speech for Palestine by donating to her legal support fund. To understand why Melissa needs a legal support fund, I spoke with Professor Basin Daly, a Palestinian Australian and a founding member of the Australian Friends of Palestine Association, working in South Australia to promote just peace for the Palestinian people based on international law and UN objectives. Here Bassam talks about Melissa and her work. After I started practicing in Western Australia, and part of her job was uh, posting in Gaza City, as part of the what's called UNRWA, UN Relief and Work Agency. There she spent two and a half years and uh, she got uh, first-hand experience 
on the sort of effect of the occupation, uh, Israeli occupation of Palestine. This is where she got introduced into human rights abuses of the Palestinians and became uh, an advocate. Obviously, uh, as a UN worker, she couldn't, but when she came back and uh, when she became a politician, this issue uh, is one, one of the issues that she cared about. In the nine years, she was a member of parliament. Obviously, uh, after she finished her term, uh, she remained uh, an advocate because uh, she's still involved in human rights uh, topics and she's also uh, involved with the UN. And what did she do with that information that she gained while she was in Gaza? Well, as a UN employee, um, her role was to report it uh, and uh, to issue uh, regular reports about uh, uh, Israeli uh, practices in the Gaza Strip. Her role to do that as part of the UN after she left is when she sort of started speaking uh, more publicly about it and uh, highlighting the, the problems that the Palestinians are having with the continuing uh, of the occupation, not just in the Gaza Strip, but obviously in the West Bank and inside Israel itself as well. How widely did she speak and what were the consequences? Within, I guess, her role as, as a member of parliament, she would give uh, speeches from time to time, uh, especially if there is uh, uh, an attack by Israel, especially if there is uh, something that is in the news. She attended uh, some informations and functions. She wasn't, uh, you know, a frontline advocate, if you want, but uh, she uh, was steadfast about uh, speaking her mind on this and many other issues that uh, that concerned her. And people may remember she was against uh, live animal export. Uh, she was advocate for lots of causes, not just this one. And the consequences for speaking out against the Israeli state? Well, obviously, um, she was uh, regarded as uh, as the enemy, if you want, just because she was, uh, you know, highlighting uh, the facts uh, and uh, speaking about it in Parliament. It is a tactic that uh, the Zionist lobby use of um, personally attacking anyone uh, who dares to criticize Israeli actions. What they sort of tended to do is to uh, what we could describe as weaponizing anti-Semitic. So just because you're talking about human rights abuses uh, by the uh, Israeli uh, army, uh, you must be hating Jews. Uh, in other words, um, you know, uh, anybody who highlights human rights abuse uh, to do with the Israeli uh, government uh, must hate Jews to do that. Otherwise, you know, they don't have any right to highlight it. And of course, that's nonsense. Um, you know, she's involved in a committee now of uh, elder experts on, on Yemen, and she's highlighting the, the human rights abuses of Yemen, and then nobody is accusing her of being uh, an Islamophobe. People who criticize the, the Catholic Church are not uh, being uh, called anti-Christian. So why is criticizing Israel suddenly make you racist and anti-Semitic? Um, this is absurd. And who and what were the instigators of the attacks on her for her outspokenness? What I call the local, the usual suspects, it's um, generally described as a Zionist lobby in, uh, in Australia. And they are, uh, you know, leading, some organizations are leading this, including uh, AJAC and ECAD. It's their role. Uh, they're the attack dogs uh, to uh, basically... Uh, silence anyone who dares to uh, speak the truth about what's happening in Palestine and the human rights abuse and uh, describing them or defaming them uh, in certain instances uh, when they do so 
by all sorts of things. Even when Jews um, they criticize the actions of the Israeli government, uh, they find terminology as a self-hating Jew. If they can't describe him there some other way, they can't call him anti-Semitic, so they, they're describing as self-hating just because uh, they dare uh, to speak uh, sort of about human rights abuses. I mean, we're lucky to live in a country like Australia where, um, you know, there are laws against defamation and that uh, free speech is available to us and that uh, we do have legislation that uh, stop people from uh, uh, vilifying others for whatever unjustified reasons. So um, we want to hold that uh, here in Australia, and uh, we need to maintain our right of free speech to speak truth to power and to actually uh, criticize governments that uh, abuse human rights. It doesn't matter where this government is and should not be a subject of personal attacks and abuse just because we dare to speak our mind. Surely one of the major attack dogs has been the, the media particularly the Murdoch media, and as they have newspapers and they've got control of newspapers from just about every state of Australia, they have got a lot of power. That's right. I mean, people may remember uh, lately um, more than half a million people signed a petition uh, to uh, do a royal commission on media ownership in Australia, still headed by uh, the ex-Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, which he says that 70% of the media is controlled by News Limited or the Murdoch Press, and that that's not good for democracy because they become, uh, in between brackets, kingmakers. They're the one who decide which government needs to happen, and unless they're happy about it, about the person, and he would give him enough concessions, they would uh, basically attack them and uh, affect the outcome of the elections. Our democracy is under threat when uh, so much media is concentrated in the hands of uh, one person or, or one company, and uh, uh, there's no uh, uh, sort of secret that uh, the Murdoch press has uh, been complicit in uh, giving the Zionist lobby free hand to attack Palestine supporters and accuse him of all sorts of things. Um, in fact, uh, you know, talking about Melissa Park, uh, uh, Herald Sun uh, was one of those newspapers that uh, amplified uh, uh, the Zionist lobby's line about Melissa Park and others as well when it comes to the issue of uh, human rights in Palestine. How has Melissa and her, her legal team fought back against these um, attacks on her through the media and through the Zionist lobby? The whole issue started in her giving a speech saying that she recalled a pregnant uh, Palestinian woman from Gaza being forced to drink a cleaning agent, uh, most likely bleach, by an Israeli soldier. Taking this, uh, uh, this story, they uh, basically said that she fabricated that, that she uh, intentionally making up things, and, uh, that, and that's because she's anti-Semitic. Of course, the story is correct. The soldier in question had been charged. It was reported in Haaretz newspaper. It was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald. The story is definitely true, and uh, there's no doubt about that, and especially that she was there uh, as a UN representative, so she knew story firsthand from people who reported to her. It wasn't something that sort of she had uh, through newspapers or, or some other sources. And the legal team and uh, advice to uh, the first thing is to um, ask for an apology and for justification of uh, these accusations. And uh, when they weren't satisfied with the answers and the uh, response, they started legal proceedings. Fortunately, that the West Australian newspaper and the Herald Sun 
both of them uh, published uh, an apology. Both of them uh, have allowed uh, Melissa to publish an opinion piece in their newspaper uh, arguing her case and they think the sort of uh, the legal proceedings are stopped. The other accused, uh, Colin Robinson, uh, would not do any of that. Court case is still proceeding against him. What did Colin Rubenstein say or write? Basically, Colin Robinson was the instigator. Well, he's part of AJAC. He's the instigator of the whole issue. He got hold of um, a, a speech that Melissa Park, where she recounted uh, this particular incident, and then he used that to accuse her of being anti-Semitic, accusing her of being basically, in other words, racist, uh, accusing her of fabricating things, fabricating stories uh, for her, uh, you know, uh, have vivid imagination and so on. It was a direct attack on her character as a person and her, her intentions. And this is what she objected to: is that uh, you know she have an impeccable record as a human rights defender. And she should not be attacked and her uh, record being sort of uh, brought to question uh, just because she actually recounted incident that did happen and was reported in the media. And, and the person in, uh, sort of who perpetrated was uh, what stood trial. And they basically to come also, and, and she always said, my motivation is to clear my name and also to put an end to this uh, bullying and weaponizing of anti-Semitism. Let's reserve anti-Semitism to those who deserve it, rather than to somebody who's speaking the truth about human rights abuses. That should never be silenced anywhere in the world, regardless if it's uh, against who. It shouldn't be definitely the case in Australia as well. Did she get a hard time during her time in Parliament from the Zionist lobby? She was attacked by the Zionist lobby during her time in Parliament, but um, she reports also that... Uh, uh, some of her colleagues in the Labour Party were not happy with her, and they uh, felt the pressure from the Zionist lobby for her to be silenced. But she stood her ground, and she uh, believed in what she was doing, and uh, she's a conviction politician. She won an award for her uh, impeccable record in the Parliament, and she was able to uh, speak the truth. And, and uh, you know, if, if a politician in a Parliament cannot stand up and speak the truth. I think uh, we have a problem with, with our democracy, and hence uh, this is why this case is important. Obviously, she's not in Parliament now, but character assassination and uh, defamation and accusing people of racism when it's all uh, figment imagination of, of these lobbies who want to silence any criticism of Israel to protect it and to protect its action against the Palestinians, obviously something has to be done about it. And um, the response in uh, in support of her, it was overwhelming. She reports that a lot of people contacted her and expressed support for the action she's taking and believe this is the right, uh, that it needs to be done such that these things don't happen again. And, of course, we're only talking about Melissa Park today. Worldwide, people who put their head up. We've only got to have a look at what's happened to Jeremy Corbyn in the last month or so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think what was really telling uh, there is a serious uh, documentary that was developed, I think, by Al Jazeera about the tactics that the lobby were using in the UK to pressure parliamentarians because of their stance in Palestine. Tactics like, uh, you know, um, some scandals that they want to fabricate and feed to the media 
tactics like depriving them of connections here and there, and the accusation of anti-Semitic uh, being it, you know, correct or otherwise, uh, they, they were going to use that uh, for their own benefits. In fact, only yesterday, a, a legislator, in, uh, an ex-legislator in, in Israel was boosting about what they were able to do in the UK and, and uh, to uh, sort of force the party, the Labour Party, to uh, sack Jeremy Corbyn for his views. He's not an anti-Semite. He never been any evidence of him being so. But yet it seems that uh, what the lobby is succeeding in doing is creating this fear that, you know, uh, if you uh, dare to open your, uh, your mouth, then you're going to be attacked and smeared. So might as well sort of you um, start to uh, self-censor you know, not mentioning anything to do with Palestine and Israel, and which is exactly uh, what the lobby wants. So it's it's calculated. It's not something that is sort of happening by coincidence. It's something that is actually uh, thought about and, and used quite violently against people or were used intentionally to uh, to deprive them of, uh, of their uh, simple rights of free speech. So you could talk about any other country in the world and criticize any other government in the world, but when it comes to criticizing the Israeli government and its abuse of human rights, you're going to be labelled and you're going to be attacked. And that's why it makes it so important that someone like Melissa is fighting back. We can help, can't we? Absolutely. I think totally uh, committed to defend her right to speak her mind. This is an attack on free speech. This is an attack on our liberty and our democracy. And uh, we need to win this. We need to send a strong message that uh, you cannot and you should not attack people for their uh, for their opinions, and you, you should not. And Israel is not about approach and, the, and criticism. Where would we stop? So would China again, then again, starts doing the same thing when uh, when somebody sort of criticizes China, and people's careers are going to be destroyed just because they spoke the truth? We should not accept this in Australia. And uh, those who believing in that, and definitely one of them, and. I'm really pleased with what more than 200 plus people who already sort of donated for uh, for this uh, legal fight, and uh, I have to say generously to, uh, to stand with us uh, and uh, calling anyone who sort of care about these issues, care about free speech, to stand with us to actually uh, first clear Melissa's name and second to send a very strong message that no one is above the law and everyone should be held liable for defaming others and for depriving them of the right to speak uh, their mind and to highlight, especially to highlight uh, human rights abuses. You know, it, it is said that an abuse of human rights here is an abuse of human rights anywhere in the world. So uh, it is a universal value, human rights, and we should protect it everywhere we can. And this is exactly what we're trying to do with this particular case. And how do people do that? GoFundMe campaign, people can go to the website, just, just write GoFundMe, just three words, and in there just uh, Google Melissa Park's name, uh, you could do a donation and uh, help us uh, in this fight. Uh, as I mentioned, more than 200 people have already done so, and uh, we have more than $32,000 uh, donated thus far, uh, but we still need a bit more to, uh, to fight this case. And the minister has said that uh, if she wins and uh, some compensation is paid, that uh, she will uh, take any surplus money and donate it to charities, four charities that she has chosen. Two of them are in Australia and the rest are in uh, in Palestine. Simply people go to the GoFundMe page or check the APAN website, find some information. As I said at the beginning, 
Melissa was the 2020 Edward Said Memorial Lecturer. The first one was Robert Fisk in 2005, and sadly he's passed away. Yes, it is really sad news. I had uh, the pleasure of uh, of hosting uh, Robert Fisk here in Adelaide and getting to know him a little bit on a personal level. He's an amazing human being, uh, an amicable record of uh, what he was able to uh, uh, report from all sorts of war zones around the world and to still have the energy and enthusiasm within him to tell the truth. Definitely a highly decorated foreign correspondent. People argue that uh, perhaps he is the most uh, well-known or famous or uh, distinguished uh, foreign correspondent ever, perhaps, uh, he practiced uh, what Edward Said basically was uh, advocating about. He, uh, Edward Said wrote his famous book, Orientalism, uh, where uh, he was trying to uh, highlight how uh, Western scholars go to report in the Middle East from their own prison rather than sort of see it from the Eastern, if you want, or the Orient uh, perspective. What Robert Fisk did, he managed to go to Palestine, he managed to go to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to all these countries, and live there in some instances, and, and report from there, and, and, and report people's voices rather than his interpretation of it as such. People may know that he lived in Beirut now for the last 20 plus years before, before his death. Beirut is not the, um, you know, the most peaceful place to live in. So he lived there during the Civil War. He lived there uh, after the Civil War, and uh, he reported from all over the Middle East. Uh, it's a great loss. He was sort of uh, semi-retired, but uh, many uh, fans around the world he had a huge following. And every time he, he wrote an article to the independent newspaper, uh, a lot of people would be interested to hear what uh, what Robert Fisk has to say, to say because um, he reports from the ground, he understands the issues, he's well connected, and um, it is a great loss that, uh, that Robert Fisk has died. I, I posted uh, a recording of his lecture, uh, and I listened to it the other day. It's remarkable even today. It's still sort of a very valuable uh, lecture, so people can... Uh, can go to a FOPA website, afopa.org, and, and listen to it. Uh, it, is, it is worthwhile. We've just had the election in the US, and it looks as though it could be a little while before we have a proper result. But looking at how both of the, the parties will impact on Palestine, some articles are saying that they're no different. They'll treat Palestinians exactly the same. And then there was an article quoting... Kamala Harris saying they would restore aid to Palestine. Have you had clarification of that? Yes and no. I mean, um, the, the issue of Palestine wasn't a big issue during the election. The analysts are absolutely spot on is that, uh, you know, um, there's not a free for the Palestinians, uh, regardless which administrations come to power in the White House. But I think the risk and the danger of having somebody like Trump in, in power uh, is far much further or much bigger than having somebody like Joe Biden. With Trump, for example, um, there's a famous case there. I mean, there's a story where Benjamin Netanyahu would, would turn up to the web, uh, White House, would show uh, President Trump fabricated video of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, saying certain things which he never said. 
And as a consequence, Donald Trump would close embassy in, in Washington. This is a fabricated video, but uh, somebody like Netanyahu was able to fool him in the White House and force him to do certain things like that. Obviously, the move of the embassy is another action that Trump did. And uh, even the recognition of the settlements is another thing that uh, was promised. I think Democratic administration or Joe Biden and Kamala, and Kamala, by the way, is not a friend of the Palestinian, no, no Joe Biden. They, the risk with him, uh, uh, while they're not as bad as Trump, uh, is that the business as usual. In other words, for Israel to continue its uh, occupation of the West Bank and the entrenchment of the settlements and their control, maintaining the, the siege of the Gaza Strip. All these aspects are not good for the Palestinians. Uh, they may restore, uh, they're saying they may restore the uh, funding to the uh, UN refugee agency, which basically will help Palestinians in refugee camps a little bit. And they may reopen the uh, uh, sort of uh, embassy in uh, in Washington. But uh, neither of these things are going to basically uh, make a lot of difference to the status quo on the ground is that uh, Palestinian territories are still occupied and the uh, Palestinians still live under occupation. Uh, this is unfortunate. We're not expecting miracles, but uh, basically uh, business as usual, which is basically uh, Palestinians are suffering under the occupation, unfortunately. Nevertheless, Bassam, the funding that certain countries give for the Palestinians is important, especially for the education of the children and health. And we've got our Australian government following, looks like, following the US and cutting funding to UNRWA. You're absolutely right. While uh, helping the refugees and maintaining uh, some sort of uh, health and education is important, and I'm not sort of um, trying to uh, minimize it, I don't understand why uh, uh, the Australian government uh, followed through. The amounts that they're giving is not that large, but yet they found that it is necessary. So the decision is purely political in my view. Uh, why they feel this is necessary is just because um, they have some sort of lobby to abuse in my view and because it's a right-wing government. There's no other reason why they would cut uh, the uh, funding to the UN uh, uh, sort of uh, agency that looks after the refugees. Refugees don't suddenly become uh, you know, rich or able to look after themselves. And, uh, and hence, the, um, the, there's no justification why the government is doing what is what is it doing. The hope is that uh, if the U.S. Uh, does restore the funding, um, that uh, Australia will do the same. But, uh, you know, it's going to be a while before this happens, I'm, I'm, I'm fearing. Yeah. Thank you, Bassam. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. I was speaking with Professor Bassam Daly. And if you would like to contribute to the fund for Melissa Park to fight her legal battles against the Zionist lobby. The place is www.gofundme slash Melissa Park. That's www.gofundme slash Melissa Park.